Welcome to another episode of the Agony of Defeat podcast. My name is Jonathan Weiler. I'm a professor of global studies at UNC Chapel Hill, and I teach a course on sports and globalization and have a longstanding interest, as does Matt, in the links between sports and politics and history. Yeah, I'm Matt Andrews. I uh, am a professor in the Department of History here at UNC Chapel Hill. I taught two courses today. One was on the revolt of the Black athlete. That was in my sport and American history course. And in my Olympics course today, we talked about sport and the anti-apartheid movement. So I feel like I'm geared up, ready for, for Dave Zirin today. Yeah, and so we do have a special guest today. We're really delighted to be joined by Dave Zirin. Dave is a noted sports journalist. He has written 11 books, including a book that just came out last month, The Kaepernick Effect, which we're going to spend most of today talking about. Dave is also the first and only sports editor in the history of the Nation magazine, a magazine that was founded by abolitionists in 1865. And Dave, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. No, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and so before we talk about the Kaepernick effect, I was just curious if you could spend a minute or so talking about this niche you've created in American sports journalism that focuses so uh, resolutely on the intersections between sports and politics in the United Uh, States. I guess I, I really want to start by saying I don't think I created a niche so much as revived one. Because when I read about, you know, Lester read Rodney in the sports section of the Communist Party's newspaper, or I read the works of people like Robert Lipsight and Leonard Schechter and all the way up to today to people like uh, Christine Brennan. I mean, there's been this political history in sports writing and even a radical history in sports writing when we think of Lester Rodney, of course, um, and the entire sports operation at the seat in the CP in the 30s. But it's also important to say that like it did kind of go away and wither really hard Um, as they got into the go-go 80s and 90s, like and the door was closed on where where a lot of that radical ferment was in the sports world, which was in the 1970s. People like Jack Scott, uh, the intervention of Dennis Brutus and the South African apartheid movement. I mean, it was like an entire door was shut on a really interesting period of incubation of sports politics. And that's the kind of stuff I was reading and into, uh, which I actually got into because of an article in the Village Voice about the American 85 and older tennis champion who has a very interesting past named Lester Rodney. Mm. <laughs> and, and then I saw that. That was like, I'm going to find some old archives and find out what this was all about. And then I got to meet Lester and spend a ton of time with him before he passed away. Sharp as attack at like 94. Um, but it, it's it's just to say that like that made me think a lot that about how to write about sports in a way that was political and how to write about politics through the lens of sports. That was a really long answer. That, 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 that was great. And just a quick shout out to the late, great Village Voice, just, uh, just to say. Yeah, changed a lot of lives, that's for sure. 
Well, and you can talk about Lester Rodney all you want. I mean, if there's one figure that I love talking about when we talk about the Jackie Robinson story, you know, someone who no one just seems to know about in my students. So wait a minute, wait a minute. He's a member of the Communist Party. Hold on. This doesn't make any sense to me. You know, it's such an opportunity to educate people about what the Communist Party certainly was in the United States in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, the, the influence, the size uh, and the fact that they played a critical role in the integration of baseball. I mean, they held marches. They had they had committees. Uh, they it was part. It was like a, considered a critical part of their anti-racist work, which included things like fighting evictions, fighting police brutality. Uh, I mean, it was a whole and fighting fighting lynchings. I mean, so they had this whole anti-racist perspective and saw sports and the desegregation of baseball. And I think this is really important: the celebration of the Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. Like and unlike the the liberal position at the time, uh, which I say very critically, uh, which was you know the Negro leagues are kind of an abomination, you know let's just recruit the best players out of there and that's how we'll integrate baseball. So th- there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, and it's and it, it it's an honor to feel like you know I'm part of that tradition because I, I think it's one that we need more of and we're seeing a lot more of it now like a real flowering of it. And that's that's really exciting. Dave, be, uh, right before you joined us on Zoom, right before we, we, we saw your face with that impressive library be behind you, there was an image of Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. And I know we're gonna talk about Kaepernick, but I, I, I just, maybe I, I don't know this about you. Um, for, for me, that was one of the, you know, galvanizing political moments. So the, the, one of the moments where all of a sudden, Things started clicking in my head about the links between sports and politics. I was in college when when Raul. I guess I was in college when he was at LSU. But a, a couple years later, I, I assume you you chose Raul for your your sort of Zoom welcoming image for a reason. Well, it wasn't random. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, you know that that was a a life changer for me when I was in college. A total light like as in pivot of your life, life changer on par with reading that village voice article about Lester Rodney, totally on par with it. Because when I was following that coverage and totally curious about what the hell was going on with Abdul Rauf and why he was doing this and listening to the reasons, um, somebody on ESPN said to me the innocuous comment, he must see himself in the tradition of activist athletes like Billie Jean King or Muhammad Ali. Tommy Smith or John Carlos and me, I was a sports obsessive and I didn't know. And I, I, I mean, I'm talking like winning sports trivia contest, loserdom. And th- this, I didn't know anything about activist athletes. I'd never heard of it before. Like what, what the hell is that? And so I went about a period of serious research, which included shadow taking a class on my campus on the black athletes since World War II, I think it was called. And um, I couldn't get into the class, but my roommate was in it. So I read all his books. I studied harder in that class than I did my own classes. And it, it was just part of a process of, of learning about this whole area of sports history that never would have happened for me whatsoever if it wasn't for Abdul Rauf. And I got to tell him that. And in an interview I did with him, and it was like one of the moments I'll never forget in my entire life. I, I don't. I don't think we said so. Just for those who who don't know his oh. story, 
Mahmoud, Dave, you want to just sort of... Yeah, yeah, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf made the very political decision to not come out for the national anthem before games. Uh, When asked why he wasn't, uh, it was very interesting. Like, he he stressed very political answers because he was reading a lot of Noam Chomsky and Arundhati Roy, and uh, I think the Roy came later, but he was really into Chomsky and U.S. foreign policy and reading about it. So when a reporter said to him, don't you realize that that flag um, is a symbol um, of freedom and democracy throughout the world? Raouf said, well, it may be a symbol of freedom and democracy to some, but it's a symbol of oppression and tyranny to others. And I was like, I was already like political and anti-war and all this stuff. So I was like, holy shit. It was a real holy shit kind of thing for him to say. and. I also was very attuned because, you know, I was doing this kind of political work like solidarity, Middle East stuff that he's giving these political answers that are rooted in a kind of in politics. And the um, the press is reporting it as, oh, this is because he converted to Islam. Right. So let's let's go to Hakeem Olajuwon for comment. And Olajuwon totally threw him under the bus. Um, it says, as Muslims, we support the law and we support the country we're in. It's like, what? Come on, Akeem, I love you. Please don't do this. So, and, and it got really ugly. Like there were hate crimes perpetrated against mosques in Denver. Yeah. Um, there was shock jock radio stuff aimed at the Muslim community because of it. And the, the, the part about it that, that really you know, it's just such an important lesson, but it's really sad is that unlike Colin Kaepernick, Abdul Raouf didn't have like masses in the streets ready to support him as who are already electric, electrically charged into a movement. I mean, that's what I've, I'll always believe gave Kaepernick his strength to marathon through that 2016 season week in, week out to do this protest. It was because of the people in the streets and Raouf, though, it was like steam without an engine. Right. But that, in a lot of ways, that makes it all the braver. Well, so we're talking a little bit about the Raouf effect on, on your career. Um, Jonathan and I started this podcast in 2016 when Colin Kaepernick started taking a knee. And we said, hey, you know what? Maybe we should start talking about these issues that we were rapping about behind the scenes all the time. Um, maybe to get us talking about Kaepernick. So you, you've mentioned Raouf and you've mentioned Smith. And and Carlos and those are the two two guys I was just talking about in in class today. Um, your book actually isn't about Kaepernick, but maybe we could start by t- talking about Kaepernick a little bit. Did do you see what Kaepernick did as exactly what Smith and Carlos did in 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 1968? Do you see s- significant differences? Oh yeah, I mean of course you know what's the the corny quote about uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Um, in that, you know, of course, there, there are strong similarities. And it's a tradition, you know, like black athlete protest anthem, starting with Roseanne Robinson right. um, in the late 50s. I mean, th- this is a, a cultural staple, truly, that this is where you express your dissent on the question of what this country offers and what it actually delivers, what this country says it stands for, and then the lived experiences that are rooted in racism and inequality. So in that regard, it is strongly part of that tradition, but it's also it's also different. It's also very much its own thing. 
um, in that it's connected to a very particular movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is very particularly focused on police impunity um, in the United States uh, and racial inequity. It's also very different because of the place the NFL holds in the culture relative to these other sports and other people in this tradition. I mean, and then the role that the quarterback plays culturally on the question of football and then the question of, it's like a, you know, a Russian doll in reverse where it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point of which the National Football League is just this um, hegemonic uh, leviathan that's really the last of what we have in the United States as anything resembling a monoculture. And within this, you have this, and it's built on this incredibly authoritarian model that absolutely depends on racial discipline to succeed. The labor discipline in the NFL is a racial discipline because of the disparity of white executives, white franchise owners, and 70% black players who are treated as disposable. That's with non-guaranteed contracts. That's a hell of a, of a contradiction. So you have to enforce racial discipline as labor discipline at all times. And then amidst all of this, you know, Colin Kaepernick is like Oliver going, sir, may I please have some more, like in the middle of all that, like just upsetting the entire concept of the discipline that was so carefully put in place by him living the Muhammad Ali quote of, you know, I don't have to be what you want me to be. And they saw that in all of sports, I would argue, like the NCAA, everybody saw that as so profoundly threatening to the running of the trains on time, to enforcing the racial hierarchy that exists in sports, that they're the ones who really caused this total freak out about it as much as the movement. Because they lost their shit. They could have done this so much more uh, politically, for lack of a better word, and remove the uproar profoundly and gee, I don't know, re-sign him to another contract because he's good enough to play, you know, but they're the ones who took it to, you know, Mach 12, you know, a, uh, a missile launcher taking out a puppy dog because they wanted to set an example because they were so freaked out about what a rebellion like that represents to the vertical authoritarianism in the sport. Well, and that's such a great comparison with Smith and Carlos too. Um, you know, had Avery Brundage not lost his shit when Smith and Carlos did this and had the USOC not caved Avery Brundage and kicked them out of the Olympic Village. It's hard to imagine that story not being meaningful. And that's certainly one of the, if not the iconic images from the 1960s. But it's the reaction. It's the fearful reaction that just sort of fuels it, gives it that, that, that backburn. Of course, absolutely. And it's that fearful reaction that uh, then becomes part of the story. You know, because all we're really talking about is storytelling and are the stories compelling enough to last generations. And the Smith Carlos story tragically is profoundly more compelling because of what it cost them yeah. and their unwillingness to be broken in that process. And John Carlos is one of the best friends I will ever have in my entire life. And so I hate that he had to go through this, but at the same time, I recognize that part of what makes him, him, is that he was forged in a very particular fire that is forever compelling. So Dave, um, 
The first time I taught a sports class at UNC was in uh, 2012. And whenever I started the class, we would always, at the beginning of the semester, I'd assign them a Sports Illustrated piece that Gary Smith wrote about John Man Williams, walk-on running back at the University of Virginia, great political activist engaged in a hunger strike on behalf of underpaid uh, you know, dining workers and other custodial workers at Virginia. And, and it was all in reflection on these previous decades that you've talked about of this, it, well, I guess we'll call it the Michael Jordan era of mm. apolitical you know, athletes. But that same year, 2012, is the year that Trayvon Martin was killed. And that's a name that recurs over and over again in your book, the awareness of these high school and college kids of his murder and how that just shook their worldview, their sense of security in the society and how that motivated them. So I don't know if you could just talk a little bit about that as a kind of origin story in some ways for the Kaepernick effect. Um, well, I'd love to hear your reflections on that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, although I am a little surprised about your dig at Michael Jordan in Tar Heel country. <laughs> um, better hope this doesn't get out there. I, I'll get a reprimand from the chancellor, I'm sure. Yeah, some some uh, board of trustee will will yeah. weigh in portentously. Not that that would ever happen at you. <laughs> not, not here, Dave. No, no. <laughs> Everybody knows their lane at UNC. Um, but wow. I mean, I learned so much from the people who I interviewed for doing this book is like, as I was writing it, it became very important to me, like in the writing to center their voices and have it really be their story, not my, you know, analysis of, of what it was they went through, but to have it be much more raw than that. Uh, cause I just had so much respect for them and what they were willing to risk and why. And one of the things that really bound um, all of the different stories, um, there are actually several common threads, but the, the Trayvon Martin one was really stunning to me. Trayvon Martin, of course, who in 2012 was stalked and killed by uh, Zimmerman. Oof, I mean, what a story. And then, of course, no justice afterwards. And these folks I was I was talking to, it just started to occur to me that they were... 10, 11 years old when Trayvon Martin was killed. And that in and of itself was, was really something to me. It's like, cause they all said that Trayvon Martin was kind of like this animating spirit for why they felt the need to act and why they felt like they had to do something. And it comes out of an experience they had that was, you know, at a very young age, extremely young age. And it reminded me so much of the civil rights stories you hear when you watch eyes on the prize or something and where you see a documentary and they talk about the effect that Emmett Till's lynching uh, had on their lives. A uh, young man from Illinois lynched and brutalized in Mississippi because the similarity is not just the heinousness of the crime, but also that there was no justice at the end of the day. Uh, and what these folks basically said to me was that they were old enough to know what had happened with Trayvon Martin, but were still young enough to not understand why the world had to be that way. And that had a real scarring effect on them. Yeah, I want to make sure we get to the to the book, obviously. And uh, 
Jonathan and I have done our parts and con contributed to the coffers. I was really excited when I saw the title of this book, The Kaepernick Effect. Um, when I teach my sport history classes, I like to say, I think the most important thing to try to figure out in sport history is um, the, the, the effect that, that, that athletes have on people's lives. I also think it's probably the hardest thing to, to figure it out. We all assume Joe Lewis changed the way people thought about race, or we, we, we like to say that Jackie Robinson clearly made America a, a better and more just place, but we know what's the proof? How do we actually figure that out as historians? But you're saying that there's an actual, you know, measurable, visible effect from what Colin Kaepernick started doing in, in 2016. For those who haven't read it, could you, could you summarize? What, what the Kaepernick effect is. Absolutely. Um, the Kaepernick effect is the chain reaction that took place in communities and sports teams around the country after Colin Kaepernick took that knee, which caused hundreds, if not thousands, actually, of young athletes throughout the country, uh, boys, girls, all variety of sports, uh, to take a knee during the anthem in protest of racial inequity and police brutality and how that like we were talking before about how the reaction becomes fuel for the story but then the other part of the kaepernick effect is what happens in those communities after that knee is taken what happens to the person after it was taken and i believe that these small acts in these different cities or absolutely transformative and that you actually can't understand the summer of 2020, which after the police murder of George Floyd, you had the largest protests in the history of the United States that took place in all 50 states, something else that had never happened before um, in US history. And to have that take place, I mean, many roads led us there, of course, but one of those roads runs straight through the playing fields of the United States. Well, and, and in fact, one of the iconic sort of gestures of the 2020 protests was protesters taking a knee, right? Yes. And, and direct respect to what Kaepernick started in 2016. I'll add a couple other things on that. Like I went to several of the protests. I obviously watched a lot online. And a very common sign was a juxtaposition of Kaepernick taking his knee and Derek Chauvin with his knee on the neck of George Floyd. You know, it didn't take a, a PhD in American studies from Columbia to know that that juxtaposition was something that was needed to be highlighted uh, to the nth degree and an obvious contrast between the quest for peaceful change and the violence of the state. So, that's the Kaepernick effect too. And, you know, you go to George Floyd Square in Minneapolis, which is filled with murals and tributes, poems. Uh, there's a huge mural of Colin Kaepernick sort of overlooking the square. I mean, you know, and this is one of the people ask me sometimes, like, what do you think about how silent Colin Kaepernick has been over the last four years or so? You know, why isn't he this regular presence, this regular voice, especially as the country has been so roiled in these different questions. And there's a part of me that, of course, would like to see him flex the leadership he accrued from 2016. But there's also a part of me that thinks there is a power in the silence in that it allows other people to really replicate what he did, 
but not for reasons that would be colored by, oh, you just agree with what Colin Kaepernick thinks about Cuba, you know, or you agree with what Colin Kaepernick says about vaccines. Like you don't, you're not carrying the baggage of this, you know, heavy political figure. What you're doing is expressing the language that he introduced on the scene that you as an athlete or as anybody could do when that anthem plays and people will know exactly what you're talking about. So Dave, the, in the book, one of the things I really appreciate about what you did in the book is it's basic, it's in three parts, essentially. The first, it's really 40%, you highlight high school athletes, boys and girls, and the ways that they stood up in the face of incredible pressure, vituperation and all of that. And then another chunk is about college athletes. And then the final part, the smallest part, which I also appreciate was about the pros. Um, and there's, I mean, I think you said that you, you spoke to over a hundred people for this book and there's so many great stories in the book. There's one person who wanted to ask you a little bit more about was Sydney Stallworth, mm. cheerleader at Howard University. Um, and the Howard University cheerleaders, they decided to take a knee in protest and they were basically, you know, shooed off the field. And so they did it in the tunnel leading to the field instead. And I was just, when I was reading that part, I was so struck by, I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna pose a rhetorical question and then ask you the same question as a real question. My first reaction was, what are you people so afraid of? It's yeah. cheerleaders in a tunnel. You know, yeah. and you are freaking out. Um, mm -hmm. But then to ask it as a real question, what are people so afraid of? And you chronicle throughout the book, these institutions everywhere cowering in the face of these gestures by high school and college students. I mean, I think that they were the canary in the coal mine for what we're seeing with this so-called critical race theory debate that's happening right now. And I think that that's, if we want to get down to the most granular level, the fear is that the knee represents having to reckon for the crimes that created this country. You know, do you really want to reckon with the violence that's been inflicted on a very specific community uh, for the crime of having been enslaved and because of the crime of trying to ensure and, and um, concretize white supremacy? I mean, it's such an affront to this established order and the fear. I think the real fear they have is what was reflected in the polls when Kaepernick took his knee. You know, a lot of people said, oh, that knee, that's polarizing America. And first, you know, that's not, because I, I tweeted this too. It's like the knee is not polarizing America. It's racism and inequality is polarizing America, not the right. damn knee. But um, but when you looked at the polls, it wasn't people who were polarized. It was white people, white people. Yeah. who were polarized. Like you have a, a, a very hefty near universal support, uh, black and brown communities. And then you have a white community that's just split down the middle with a slight edge towards, no, we don't like it. Like it was something like, yeah, it actually was a, it was like 55, 45 or 60, 40 against Kaepernick. But that's still a significant chunk of the white population that's really wrestling with this shit. Yeah. And I think that's also a great fear. So there's a lot, like the fear factor is 
it's like what we were talking about before with the racial discipline in the NFL. The fear factor is so outweighs the the, the simplicity and justness of the gesture and what they're asking for. It's like what they say about the civil about Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. You know, it was never just about water fountains for the people who wanted to keep the water fountains separate. You know, it's like they're they're pulling this the string on a sweater. And I think that's what this represents to them so much, which caused this level of, of, of hysteria and panic. I mean, some of the stories that stick with me are like the the stories where the administrators are negotiating the terms of their protest. Like, how about you just wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, but you don't take the knee? How about black sashes, but you don't take the knee? How about we start a committee, but don't take the knee? It's like, they're, they're I mean, I've never heard of anything like this. Linking arms. Yeah, linking arms, That's but don't take a knee. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just the fear of that gesture and the fear of what it represents to people was, was I think, tells its own story. Or the next year, Jerry Jones linking arm, you know, in the ultimate sort of co-option of the, of the movie, linking arms with the players, taking a knee, and now saying, and now here comes the national anthem, boys. Let's let us let us get on up. Um, you know, that was just a classic example of it, which some people actually fell for. I can remember it was Michael Wilbon on ESPN saying Jerry Jones is a leader of men. And just thinking to myself, what in the world are you talking about? You've been bam bamboozled by this guy. Wow. There, there's a lot of bad sports commentary out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, like Jonathan, I was I really appreciated how much uh, airtime you gave to the high school students. And I was wondering if you thought that maybe the high school students brought something to this moment that the college students couldn't or that the that that the pro athletes couldn't. Well, each one is definitely distinct. Uh, high school students uh, face a very particular set of challenges. Um, College students with the scholarships or being, you know, cast out of your community as somewhere uh, has its own challenges. And when you're a pro and getting a paycheck has its own challenges. But the the ratios in the book, I wanted them to be reflective because I did more interviews than are in the book. Um, it, but it became a question of I want the book to represent to at least the best, not that I'm going to be perfect by any stretch, but at least to the best of my knowledge, the ratio of who actually was out there taking the knee. So it was definitely more high school kids did it than college yeah. kids. More college people did it than pros. All right. So a lot of women took the risk as well. There yeah. needs to be that kind of gender representation in the book. Um, cheerleaders were a part of this. I can't be like, ah, cheerleaders and leave them out or whatever for any sort of sexist meanderings in my own head. So, yeah, so it's like, no, the cheerleaders have to be wrapped in this. Um, and similarly, it's like, I wanted some white voices. So of white people who took a knee, so there could be like, just that perspective of where that comes from. And they're thinking about what it means to be an anti-racist white person. But I didn't want there to be too many of those voices, <laughs> because that's not what the book is about. So the, the 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 idea of trying to make it like that was actually a bigger concern than like oh I can't leave this out oh I really liked interviewing that person I want to like that that was a secondary consideration before the sort of uh, architecture of it. Speaking of 
white voices. I really appreciated the story you told of Josh Meyer, who was the oh, coach yeah. of St. Michael's men's basketball in Vermont, Division Three school. And he just had, I was so really moved by his self-reflection, his belief that part of his job is to support his athletes, many of whom are black, of course, as whole people. And I just couldn't help but note that we hear these empty phrases from coaches all the time. I want to develop the whole, you know, I want to, I want to make men, I want to develop felt the whole person and comparing Josh Meyer to Urban Meyer. Ah. <laughs> you know, I just couldn't help but think of that because Josh Meyer articulated so beautifully what it means to actually help young people become their full selves and the truth of that versus the fraud that the other Meyer is. Anyway, just, <laughs> you mentioned that. I just couldn't help but think about that when I was reading that great story you told about him. Thanks. I can't help thinking of the, the photos that recently came up of Urban Meyer, uh, not not those photos, but the photos of him bringing Larry Elder in mm-hmm. to speak to the Ohio State team. And it's just the, the, the audacity and the grotesqueness of somebody who's made tens of millions of dollars off of the unpaid labor of black football players, bringing in Larry Elder to tell them that racism doesn't exist. It's like fuck you and in so so punchable um and josh meyer is Not that we endorse violence on the no show. no 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 that's just a figure of speech um and josh meyer is uh his negation in a lot of respects and i wish josh was still coaching right now he's doing some kind of amazing work somewhere but it says something that the coaching uh fraternity whatever you want to call it the coaching um world you know, really isn't, tries to make people like Josh Meyer feel as uncomfortable as possible. But I go to always on this question, I defer to, and I say this in a lot of interviews to Joe Ehrman, uh, who a former Baltimore Colt who does all this coaching for life stuff. And he's brilliant and empathetic. And uh, he always says there are two kinds of coaches, the transactional and the transformational. Uh, the transactional are in it for what the kids can give them. The transformational are you in it to try to educate, really educate the people who you're being entrusted with. So, you know, we know who Urban Meyer is and we know who Josh Meyer is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in, in a different vein, one of the coaches that I was struck with in these stories was when your college section, it was, I guess it's Mike Riley when he was at Nebraska. Yeah who, when one of his players, I, I forgive me, I can't remember the player's name, came up to him and said, I'm thinking about taking a knee. And I was just sort of aghast at Raleigh, at Riley just saying, yeah, that sounds good. I support that. And then, you know, moving on. And like, aren't you going to talk to this kid about what maybe is coming his way? Just just sort of let him know what the, what the ramifications might be. Yeah, that that's almost like Mike Riley's like the one example of this, but like the liberal abstentionism. Yeah. Normally with coaches, you, you either get, you know, most overwhelmingly majority of cases, you get like almost like a like a right wing response of, oh, hell no. You know, you're not going to buck my authority. And in a couple of cases like Joey Thomas at Garfield and Josh Meyer and uh, Preston Brown. I mean, these guys are like, no, we're in it with you all the way. You know, that's the I think the correct 
um, you know, humanistic, you want to call it radical, you can response, but like liberal abstentionism of Mike Riley. It's like, oh, you want to take a knee? Rock and roll, dude. I can't wait to see what happens. Really isn't leadership. Speaking of things that aren't leadership, um, so Kaepernick does this in 2016. When I think of 2016, I think of the death of Prince. I mm. think of Colin Kaepernick. And I, of course, think of the guy who got the White House in, in, in 2016. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if when you think of the Colin Kaepernick story, is it is it possible to separate it from the rise of, because clearly I guess what I'm getting at, Trump seized oh. on the Colin Kaepernick story. Sure. Yeah, and, and the, the way in which these stories are, they, 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 they intersect or they're, 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 they're inseparable in your mind. Well, there's, I mean, there's of course no question that if say Colin Kaepernick had retired from football at age 28 and we knew nothing about him in 2016, Donald Trump would have found something else to be racist about. They would have found a case of uh, some crime committed in a border town and they would have turned that into whatever he wanted to turn that into because it was all about just giving his audience racist red meat. But you do have to factor in, it's almost like a steroid of when you're factoring in the National Football League and all of its cultural capital and you're factoring in this very compelling person on the cover of Time magazine on one knee. Now that's a target if you're Donald Trump. That's a target if you're an aspiring uh, fascist. I mean, th th that's how you do what you do. Now, if someone asked me, do you think Colin Kaepernick, like, you know, affected the election? My, my tendency is to say no, Hillary Clinton won by 3 million votes. I don't know what you're talking about. Like the electoral college affected the election. So, but, but it, it, I totally agree with you on everything you said. I mean, in a lot of ways, Prince feels almost like, like I don't, I don't associate it with a year so much as like I associate it with this sense of prolonged loss where I can't really even tr trace it back to a date, but it's just like, you feel like the presence of his non-creative self being there. Of course, I went to college in Minneapolis, so I can get very sloppy about Prince if you let me. <laughs> All right. Um, Dave, just one more question from me. We talked about Kaepernick not being so much in the public spotlight these days, but inspiring, of course, you know, a generation of folks. And you mentioned a couple of times in the book, his no rights camps yeah and i was just wondering if you could just say a little bit about what those are because it, well, it, it it came up at least a few times in the book so unfortunately there of course haven't been any in the last couple of years largely covid and all that so just wasn't happening but you get a couple hundred kids who go to schools that are deemed at risk and do a day of seminars and these are young kids and, and you know 12, 13, 14 years old. And he founds like, like Colin like MCs it and they do workshops throughout the day on um, political literacy, uh, knowing your rights if a police officer stops you. So legal literacy, uh, nutritional literacy, financial literacy. I mean, it's like, and he's found like some of the most dynamic speakers to do this. And so Colin's not particularly dynamic. I mean, he's charismatic, but he's a very soft-spoken person. And he kind of introduces this, every speaker. He makes sure that everybody knows where to go to get their lunch. I mean, he's 
like a rank and filer in that regard and making sure everything goes okay. And, uh, and he lets the speakers do the work and, and gives away prizes and gets like a celebrity like common to come in and be like, Hey, and everyone's like, it's common. So the kids have an absolute blast and they all get pictures with him afterwards. And, uh, it's clearly modeled after the black Panther programs. Um, in that even like the t-shirts have like their, it's like a five point plan of, I think it's called of what you do if you're stopped by police. So it's all there. I just want to say quickly, having grown up in Jewish summer camps, no one ever thought it necessary to brief us on our rights in case we were stopped by police. So. I was never a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, it never came up. Yeah. Mm. Well, Dave, with my last question, could I just ask you, uh, I'm, I'm watching, we're going to go in a different direction here. I'm watching the Ali documentary, and I know you were a contributor to it. I'm only halfway through. Uh, haven't seen you on it yet. Do I get to see you in episodes three and four? Uh, episode four, for sure. I uh, largely ended up on the cutting room floor for floor. So, uh, you know, that's just part of the life. Well, I guess I'm... Well, I, it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Gerald Early and others talking about it, maybe. Yeah, it's yeah, tough, tough company. Tough competition there. Yeah, it's like, you know, you could either talk to Kareem or you could talk to the, the Jewish guy in his 40s. I mean, it's like, it's not a, you know, it's like, it's like who, 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 you know, like Kareem and I can say the same thing, but you want it to come out of Kareem's mouth. I get that. Uh, even if it can be a bitter pill, it's one I willingly swallow. Uh, it's, I'll be curious what you think about it. You know, I, I, it's not the Ali doc I would have made, you know, and, and, uh, one of the reasons why I was a little like winced more about the cutting room floor stuff was less about me and more about like, you know, I was, I was talking some, some shit that I had wished had ended up in there. You know what I'm saying? Like particularly about the importance of the nation of Islam in Northern cities. And you know, that that's, I don't know. I'm, I'm not want to say anything cause you're watching. All right. Fair. What, what, no, well, I, I, I really enjoyed working with the folks there. They were awesome. And, uh, you know, maybe next time. I know how the story ends, but I was really struck by Kareem speaking of it on episode two, where he compared Ali to Jackie Robinson and said, both of these guys just had a way about them where they decided they were going to just take it for the rest of black Americans. Mm. Um, you know, I, I know what's coming my way. I'm just going to take it. I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to put, put, put the bullseye on my back. I don't really get the sense that Kaepernick, or I, I'm not even sure what I'm saying here, but would, would you put Kaepernick in that ca same category? I mean, he certainly took a lot of arrows, that's for sure, um, in 2016 in particular. Uh, and, and, then, sac and sacrificed an NFL career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sacrificed the career. Uh, you know, is seen as a genuine, you know, uh, martyr in that regard, in that he's seen as someone who actively sacrificed something and in the process exposed the National Football League um, yeah. in a way that it hadn't been dis um, exposed. I mean, I've said that like the, the banning of Kaepernick is, is gonna be regarded like, uh, seriously, like it's a, the color line in Major League Baseball, like this kind of gentleman's agreement that created a stain on the league that just will never, ever, ever be cleaned. Um, and it, it's, it's, so there's that, 
Definitely. And then there's the strategy of silence, you know, something obviously that neither Jackie Robinson with his column in the New York Post uh, and regular, you know, marching and building of the civil rights movement or Muhammad Ali with his uh, loquaciousness that could not be resisted, you know, they, they did not choose silence. So in that regard, Kaepernick is doing something different. I choose not to judge whether it was better or worse, smart or not smart, because my God, you know, I'm not in his shoes. And, um, you know, John Carlos once said to me that, um, he said, if you think about it, when I raised my fist, it was just for a minute and a half, you know, that's how long my protest was. And I've been carrying it for 50 years. Yeah. Colin Kaepernick basically protested for four months. Like who knows how that's going to affect somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I was getting at. We've already seen the NFL start to co-op Kaepernick a little bit, just like the way the United States Olympic committee brought Smith and Carlos into their hall of fame a couple of years ago. I'm sure the NFL is going to do something similar, probably toward the end of our lifestyle lifetimes. Don't, or maybe Daniels don't, don't hold your breath. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think so. Yeah. There's, they can only do so much. (laughs) Yeah. Dave, thank you so much for for joining us. I know you're a super busy dude, but um, you're a, a real inspiration to, to Jonathan and I. So it was just such a such a treat speaking to you. Thanks. You know, it, it means a lot to hear. Um, so I'm an inspiration to Jonathan and you, but Daniel thinks I'm an asshole. That's what I'm hearing. From <laughs> uh, no, I just said that to crack Daniel up. Um, if you're wondering whether he's paying attention, he's definitely. Yeah, yeah, that was my, that's exactly what I was doing. <laughs> I was like, can I get a reaction from this guy? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was great to talk to you guys. Uh, I, I, anytime. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll let you go and then we'll all wrap this up. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dave. Jonathan, that was fun. That was super fun. Um, Jonathan, you're so much better at taking us out than, than <laughs> I am. Can I ask you to do it? Sure. Yeah. So this was another episode of the agony of defeat podcast uh you can find us anywhere you find your podcasts even iHeartRadio podcasts i've seen recently on itunes and soundcloud and spotify and so forth and so on uh thanks as always to daniel myrick our great producer and until next time